Well, about, uh, about three years ago, when I was first hired here, and I was, in, uh, I was setting up my new office, some of you have been back there, it's just in the, uh, in the, in the co-op library back here, and uh, Pastor Sexton and I had just um, came into the room and set up some bookshelves and hauled in a really large uh, desk from uh, the previous pastor, and he said, this is going to be your office, and left me so I could set it up. And I was cleaning out the desk uh, that I had just inherited. I was getting rid of the clutter, um, throwing away some receipts and stuff like that. And as I was pulling the papers out of one of the drawers, in the back of the drawer, I saw a glint of gold. And so, of course, that caught my eye, and I pulled it out, and I found in the back of the drawer there was a wedding band. That's what I thought it was. But as I looked at it closer and looked past all the scratches and the markings on it, I saw that actually around the edge of this wedding band were these little runic writing markings on this band. And all of a sudden, I knew I was holding the one ring. I was holding the ring of power. I'm not kidding. The ring of power is in my desk back here in the co-op library. And so I'm, I'm holding this thing, and I, all of a sudden, the questions start to race through your mind, right? You start going, um, what kind of church is this, <laughs> you know, that I've just moved to, that there's huge Lord of the Ring fans. The pastor has a replica of the ring in his desk, you know. Or um, is this a test? Is somebody watching me? You know, what's, what's going on here? But then I realized that uh, if, if everyone was a really big Lord of the Rings fan, um, I just moved here. Think of all the points I could score if I gave this ring to the kids at the co-op, right? And so you know what I did? I kept it. <laughs> right? You know, it was like, why shouldn't I? I, I found it. It's, my, it's in my desk, right? For those of you who haven't read the books and don't know what I'm talking about, the, the one ring is uh, from a, a series of books, The Lord of the Rings, uh, by an author named uh, Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien. And um, in the story, there's a magical ring, one great ring, and it's, it's this concrete symbol of evil. Um, it's powerful, and above all, the ring is deceitful. It promises the wearer its greatest dreams and unlimited power, but the ring corrupts and ensnares whoever places it on his finger. And the reason that the ring works so well, the magical ring works so well as a symbol in uh, the books, is because Tolkien was meditating on the nature of evil and temptation in the world as it actually is. Um, it's a realistic uh, symbol because the temptation and the evil that the ring promises is something that we have all experienced. And, and the ring turns and works primarily on deceit. All right, whoever is tempted by the ring is promised their greatest dreams, but then the moment they put it on, it ensnares them, and the evil begins to work in them and corrupt them. And Tolkien, when he wrote this uh, story, he was really onto something. He understood that temptation works on power and deceit. Temptation fundamentally 
is about lies. And that's what the, the text that we just read in Genesis 3 was about. It's about temptation. It's about sin. But fundamentally, if you look at it, the temptations work on lies. And so as we work through the passage today, uh, what we're going to see is at least three lies that temptation promises to all of us, and then we're going to look at God's truth and how it answers that. So three lies in temptation, and then God's truth. The first lie that temptation tells every single one of us is this, you can have good apart from God. You can have good apart from God. This is what is going on in Eve's mind as she is looking at the fruit in verse 6. Look at it with me. Uh, Satan has come and already talked to Eve, and she turns and she sees the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it says this in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. Everything that God made in our world, that Genesis tells us, everything before sin and the fall is good. Everything is very good, as it tells us in Genesis chapter 1, including the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the problem with Adam and Eve taking the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not that the fruit is poisonous or that it's tainted or that it's electrified or that um, it, will, it will kill you if you touch it. That wasn't what was going on. Um, as Eve was looking at it, you can see the goodness of what she's looking at. It says that it was good for food. In other words, it would fill your belly. It would satisfy your biological desires and your needs. It says it was pleasant to the eyes. It gave intellectual or aesthetic pleasure. It was beautiful. It was good to look at. It was desirable to make one wise. Now that phrase is actually connected to Adam and Eve's purpose in life. Remember God, we saw, it, we saw in Genesis 1 and 2 that God put them in the garden in order to rule the creation under him. That's what it says in Genesis 1.28, that they are to have dominion over creation under God. In the, in the Bible, the knowledge of good and evil is not a bad thing. It's something that rulers, that those who have dominion, use in order to make good judgments. It's something that they use in order to rule wisely. Later in the Bible, when, when God appears to King Solomon and asks him, um, ask of me and, and I'll give you whatever you desire, this, the knowledge of good and evil, is precisely what Solomon asks for. He says in 1 Kings 3, Give me an understanding heart to judge between good and evil. Solomon knew that as a king, as a ruler, as someone who has dominion, this is what he would need in order to make good judgments. And so he asked for it, and God is pleased with his uh, request. He says, this is a wonderful thing. You will need this in order to rule well. So the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. When we think about the original temptation and all the kinds of temptations that you and I faced, we're not talking about whether Adam and Eve were just eating a piece of fruit. When Eve looks at that tree, what's filling her eyes is something that she believes at this point is going to satisfy her. 
physically, aesthetically, intellectually, vocationally. It's going to fulfill her greatest desires. It's just like the ring. It's what Satan has done to her at this point is he's plopped an object down in front of her and said, this will satisfy you in every possible way. Can you imagine that if, that if someone came to you and said, here is a thing that will satisfy you in every possible way, will fulfill you in every possible way that you can think of. How hard would it be to resist that temptation? Can you imagine that? Of course you can. Because you and I do that all the time. You and I do that every time. In fact, that we, t- we tell ourselves, I will be happy when, or I will be truly satisfied if, my life will be fulfilled when fill in the blank. If we fill in the blank with anything other than the love of God in Jesus Christ, we are doing exactly what, it, what is happening to Eve at that moment. You see, all of the things that Eve sees in the fruit are good things, and they're good in their place. But notice who's not in her vision and who's not in her thoughts in verse 6. God. God is nowhere in her thoughts. Nothing in her thoughts, nothing in her thoughts at this point, or in her thoughts, in fact, at this point, except what she believes will satisfy her without God. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about this aspect of temptation in his book. He said this, quote, In temptation, desire seizes the mastery of the flesh. It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge, a love for fame and power or greed or money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. At that moment, God is quite unreal to us. Actually, what, what, what Eve's doing, what's happening to her, is what happens to you and I every time we lose sight of God. Just as Paul says in Romans 1, and they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. The temptation that has come to Eve is to turn from God, from her source of life and joy and fulfillment, and turn to the creation instead. In other words, trying to find good in life without God is idolatry. That's exact, that's, that what's, is what Satan is ultimately tempting them to. Look at verse number five. Satan tells her, For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see what he's telling her? He's telling her, you don't need God. Don't listen to him. You decide what will be fulfilling and satisfying for you. And then he holds up some aspect, good aspect that God made of the created order. The primal sin, the primal lie, the primal temptation that you and I face every day is to live without reference to God. To turn from worship and gratitude of the true and living God and toward the created things that he's made. To see them not as good gifts from a God who loves us and desires us to love him back. 
but things that are satisfying in and of themselves for us to take and do with as we please. That's the first lie. That's the primal lie. Idolatry. Worship the created thing rather than the creator. That's the first lie. The second lie that Satan tells them is there will be no consequences for sin. That's what he says in verse number four. He says this, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now that is just a flat contradiction of what God told Adam earlier in Genesis 2.17, where God says to Adam, In the day that, of you, that you eat of it, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. God had attached a penalty to breaking his law. And Satan comes and flat denies it and says, you will not die. He tells Eve, it's a scare tactic. Not only will you not die, but your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Not only will you not die, you'll truly begin to live. This will be a good thing for you. And that's the half-truth and the full lie of sin. Because in verse 7, it says, when they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their eyes were opened. It, it really did happen. They did have their eyes open, but only so that they could see their guilt and their shame and their nakedness. And they did not die physically that day, but they did die spiritually. They lost their fellowship with God. They lost their innocence, and they lost their very source of life. At the very end of the chapter in verse 24, it says this, So he drove out the man, and he placed the cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Their eyes really were opened. They really did gain a sense of what sin is and of judgment, but there was a hook. They knew that now they were guilty, that they were ashamed, and as we saw in verse 24, they were cut off from their source of life. They were cut off from fellowship with God and the tree of life. In the Lord of the Rings, there's a character named Gollum or Smeagol who murders his friend in order to, to get the ring. He's tempted by it. He murders his friend and, and he gets the ring. And, and you watch him as he gets what he wants, but the ring, as it works its power, slowly corrupts him and transforms him um, and debases him. And by the time you meet him in the story, he's lived for many, many years under a mountain, and he's a kind of grotesque and deformed um, soul. And he stays that way throughout the book. That's the effect the, of, of temptation of sin once it, once it gets into us. Temptation works like this in our lives. It promises pleasure, it promises power, it promises knowledge, and in a sense, sin will always deliver something, but at great cost, at lying, at deceitful cost. Drugs really will make you forget for a time of your pain, but at the price of addiction. The pleasure that the website promises is cheap and comes at the price of loathing and guilt. When you turn the argument over and over in your mind, you do feel a sense of being justified and righteous at the cost of the loss of your relationships. 
Adam and Eve thought they would become free, that they would become truly free, and instead they became slaves. Slaves to sin and to their passions and lusts, and ultimately slaves to Satan. And it's happened to every single one of us. As Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Every single one of us have followed our first parents, and we've reached for the fruit. We've reached for the ring, and we've all felt its effects in our lives. Before Christ comes and saves us, we're all in a state of living death. That's what the book of Ephesians tells us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And ultimately, that is the real cost. That is the real price. That is eternal death, damnation, complete separation from God. How could it be otherwise whenever what sin is, is choosing something other than God, something other than life itself? Paul tells us that whoever sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap destruction. God has attached the penalty of eternal death in hell to sin, and temptation tries to hide that from our eyes. That's how these two work together. That's what temptation does. That's what Satan does. He holds up something good other than God and marries it with sin, and then he tries to push the consequences away from your sight. That's the second lie. The third lie that Satan tells them is that God is holding out on you, that you can't trust him. That's what he says to Eve in verse 1. Satan comes to Eve and says this, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? In fact, God had said, You can eat of every tree in the garden, save one. And so what he's doing is he's recasting God's overflowing generosity as being stingy or petty or restrictive. He wants them to think that the one thing that they cannot have is absolutely everything. He follows it up in verse 5, saying that God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see what he's doing there? He's saying, here's a good thing that God has made, and God is keeping it from you. He knows it's good, and he knows that you need it. God knows that if you had it, you'd be happier. God knows that if you did this or that, that you'd be more powerful. God doesn't care about you. He knows what you need, and he is going to keep you from it. And so, as Eve looks at the fruit, the questions are running in her mind. Does God actually love me? Does God care? Does he have my best interest at heart? Every time that you're faced with a temptation, that question is running through your mind. Whether we realize it or not, does God love me and can I trust him? Does God love me and can I trust him? How will you answer that question? Well, every single one of us have answered no. To that question. No, God does not love me. No, I can't trust him. That's exactly why some of us have lived lives simply following our desires and doing whatever we want, because 
we believe at some level, deep down, that God is not good. He doesn't know what we need. He doesn't want to make us happy. And his rules are there to keep good things from us. It's also why some of us work so hard to keep the rules that God has made and instead live with a miserable sense of guilt and condemnation because we believe that God is not good, that he's not gracious, that he's not kind and not forgiving, and it drives us to do what he says, but under the burden of guilt and shame. Ultimately, whichever path you pick, it's a belief that God doesn't have your best interests in mind and that God is not kind and good to you. We've all reached out and taken hold of the fruit. Every single one of us has slipped the ring on our finger. And here's the problem. We can't let go of it. We can't let go of it. Have you ever, have you ever tried? Have you ever tried to muster up the willpower to just stop? Think about the sin, the temptation in your life that recurs over and over again. Have you ever just tried to stop? I'm going to let go. I'm going to cast the fruit down. I'm going to pull the ring off. I'll give it up. We can't do it. It never works. It, it may work for a short time. You know, you may, you may gain a modicum of victory here or there, but ultimately you find that the ring is still on your finger. We can't let go. We need someone who will take it and let go for us. And that's precisely what Paul tells us that Jesus did for us. In the book of Philippians, which we read earlier, Paul says this, Though Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is God. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And he had the very thing that Adam and Eve wanted, to be as God. The very thing that you and I try to grasp at, he had by right. And yet, he did not consider his glory and his prerogatives something to be clutched at, something to be grasped. Instead, he let them go freely out of love for you and me. And he took on, as it says, human form. So he could take up every instance of your selfish grasping, every instance of your unbelief, every instance of idolatry, and die under the wrath of God on a cross for you, for your sins. And he did that so he could rise from the dead and put his spirit in you, so that that spirit would aid you in slowly, one by one, taking your finger off of the fruit, taking your finger off of the sin, taking your fingers away from the temptation that besets us. That's the wisdom and the power of God. In our pride, we tried to become God and get on his throne, and God in his humility became a man so that he might serve us and take away all of our sins on the cross. So does God love you? Can you trust him? You will begin to answer yes to that question when the Spirit opens your eyes to see the love of God for you in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
That's when the lies will begin to fade away and not have effect in your life. When you can say, just like the Apostle Paul says, that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Graciously give us all things. That's what God did in the world that he made. And that's the lie that Satan has told us, that God will not do that. But in the cross of Christ, you can see that absolutely God will do that, even if you are a sinner. You can go to him for the forgiveness of your sins. If you're here today and you haven't gone to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to know that it is not possible to beat the power of sin or temptation in your life without Christ. You'll never let go of sin until you first receive the love of God for you and the cross of Jesus Christ. Go to him, begging for forgiveness, and he will forgive you, and he will slowly work in your life to take away the power of sin. For those of us who know Christ, who believe in him, the effects of sin still linger. All of us still wrestle with the flesh, as we will for the rest of this life, until we see Jesus in glory. But if you want to beat temptation in your life, you need to know the truth. It's not a matter of willpower. It's a matter of knowing and believing in the goodness of God. You need to know the truth of the ugliness of your sin, the way it offends God and destroys in your life and others, and the way that it's all at its root about trying to live without reference to God. You need to know about the truth of God's love for you that God really did send his son to die for your sin and that his forgiveness and his grace are ongoing. Every day you can go to him for forgiveness. Every day you can go, for him, go to him for power. We need that in order to beat temptation, in order to beat sin in our lives. The Puritan preacher Thomas Chalmers said this in a sermon, quote, salvation by grace, salvation by free grace, Salvation not of works, but according to the mercy of God. Salvation on such a footing is not more indispensable to the deliverance of our persons from the hand of justice than it is to the deliverance of our hearts from the chill and weight of ungodliness. Retain a single shred or fragment of legality with the gospel, and we raise a topic of distrust between man and God. End quote. What he's saying there is that understanding that you are indeed a great sinner and that God has loved you eternally and forgiven your sins in Christ is not only for being justified, it's not only for coming to faith in Christ, it's the power that motivates and sanctifies us for the rest of our lives as Christians, until we see face-to-face -face the God who loved us and gave his son for us. It means that whatever else you might do, whatever practical steps you might take, at the heart of your battle against sin are two things. Meditating on the love of God for you and the cross of Jesus Christ and renewing your mind according to the truth of God's word. Meditating on the love of God for you in the cross of Jesus Christ and renewing your mind in the truth of God's word. 
The truth of God's word will combat the lies that sin and temptation tells you. And meditating on God's love for you in the cross will give you the firm foundation that you need in order to believe those truths and to have power to overcome them. So a very practical application, a very practical way that this has worked out um, in my life and in, in Rachel's life, she's done this too, is if you have a sin or you have a temptation that is a, a nuisance, that's constant in your life, whatever that situation is, get yourself a piece of paper, write it out on the top, split the paper into two columns. And on one column, write out every lie that that temptation is promising you, every lie that you're believing about that situation. And then on the other column, go and write some corresponding truth from God's word about that temptation. And take, take time to meditate those verses that tell you the truth about yourself, about God, and about your situation. Meditate on them throughout the day. And, and meditate on the cross. And as you do those two things, the Holy Spirit will empower you to slowly begin to let go of the sin and the temptation in your life. I'll close today by re reminding us all of the exhortation that's given in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4. It says this, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. If you have not come to the Lord, you need to know that you can draw near to God through him and receive grace and mercy from his right hand. He died on the cross for your sins, and he is alive at the right hand of God to welcome sinners and forgive them so that they might have eternal life. If you are struggling under the weight and the burden of sin, as we all are to one degree or another, know that Jesus, your high priest, sits in the heavens waiting, eager to dispense grace to you as you meditate on the truth of God's word and his love for you in the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you how you have given us great and precious promises in it that we might have salvation in your son, that we might have the power to fight sin and live holy lives. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us grace by your spirit to meditate on them in truth and to find victory until we see you in glory. In Jesus' name, amen.